Albert Einstein said a lot of brilliant things in his day. I don't get most of them, but there is one thought that I'm at least starting to comprehend. And by the end of this season, I think we'll all understand it a little more. He said, no problem can be solved from the same level of consciousness that created it. In other words, whatever problem we are facing, one thing is certain. We can't fix it using the same kind of thinking we use to create it. And that, I'm realizing, is one of the most important lessons we could ever learn. And as it turns out, as is usually the case, Jesus was about 2,000 years ahead of us. Because imagine for a second you live in Jerusalem in the first century. Times are tough because you aren't free. Rome is at the height of their power and is establishing a kingdom of relative peace as long as you agree with everything they say. If you don't, you find yourself hanging on a cross, but your friends that ran off to join the zealots as they violently try to overthrow Rome just seem bitter. And your friends who joined Rome and became tax collectors lost their friends and family in the process. And every time you go to the temple to ask the deep, real God questions that you have, you can't seem to find anyone to talk to. The Sadducees seem more interested in politics and power than in faith. The Herodians just say whatever they are told to, and the Pharisees give rather harsh one-word answers to your deeply personal questions. That would be a lonely place to be, a rather confusing one where life starts to feel like a giant treadmill and you're running really hard but aren't getting anywhere. If you've ever felt that way, you're in good company. It's a tale as old as time. Luckily in those days, this rabbi showed up to the temple with a couple of his buddies and started doing things different. He was real, generous, vulnerable, humble, almost as if he was bored with trying to fix problems with the same consciousness that created them. And that is what this season is about. To help us see it, we're going to tell this story from the perspective of a man who is blind. Well, at least at the beginning of our story, and then spends the whole season learning how to see. Welcome to Stories in Scripture, a podcast dedicated to telling the big story of the Bible one piece at a time. This season, one man learns the key to life isn't power or privilege, but a new way of seeing the world. The whip cracked against the hum of the temple. The hum stopped. In stunned silence, coins echoed off the floor. The priests heard it in the inner rooms. He had never heard the temple so quiet and still. His blindness forced him to know the temple by ear. He could tell you the sound of each corner and each person. This was new. For all the difficulties it brought, being blind in the temple did come with one advantage, invisibility. People rarely noticed him. It has allowed him to become part of the temple, a strange, humble fixture that blends with the opulence. He has spent his life listening to people, to conversations, to private moments when those involved think no one's present. Blindness hasn't hindered awareness, and the temple is the perfect place to listen. He knows the temple and those who spend their time there. 
It is rare for something to happen that shocks him. He's used to noise, loud and chaotic. This is new. Whoever is at the heart of this commotion means business. The shouting has resumed, but one voice pierces the air. A sinking pit opens up in his stomach. He hates conflict. He's hated it his whole life. He feels helpless and vulnerable when people fight. This is one of the many disadvantages of being blind. He can't defend himself. But it is deeper than that, isn't it? He thinks to himself. He just wants peace. He just wants people to be at peace with one another. The one voice begins to outweigh the others. It's not just louder. He has long been able to feel sound, to hold it in his hands, and know things about it that people who see can't know. This voice has a weight he's not heard before. It carries authority in its waves. He focuses on what it's saying. My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. This entire story takes place in Jerusalem during the final week of Jesus' life. Matthew, a former tax collector turned disciple, records it all for us, and you can read it yourself in Matthew 21 through 23. Jesus spent these final days teaching us and showing us so many things that 2,000 years later we're still giving sermons, writing books, and making podcasts to explore his words. This season is about one of those lessons. And it starts rather abruptly with Jesus coming into the temple and making a scene. In these days, several different religious sects emerge within Judaism and the leaders hardly ever saw eye to eye on anything. The Herodians, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they all had different opinions on religion, the Bible, and God and weren't shy about letting the world know. So the temple often became the battleground for them to hash things out. And Jesus just made a rather big entrance that would have made even the bravest of souls uncomfortable. He doesn't remember exactly when he came to the temple. If there was life before, he's since forgotten. The temple is all he's known. He occupies the empty spaces near the walls and along the fringes. He's alone most of the time, feeling his way through his solitary existence. The people at the temple provide for him, but don't spend time with him. His life is good here. He can feel the disdain warm his skin most days, but he's learned to live with it. It is the price he is willing to pay not to beg on the dirty streets of the city. He inhales and lets the breath out slowly. The familiar sounds and smells comfort his soul. He still struggles with his sensing he is a burden on their world. The darkness makes it harder to keep track of the days and the memories. This blind man has spent all of his days in the same corner in the temple and there is a reason for that. In each episode, we'll get a quick glance into moments from this man's past and the religious leaders he's grown up surrounded by. Starting with this moment, which happened 20 years earlier when he was just a kid. Suddenly, he is outside, the sun warming his face, the wind cooling his skin as he runs through the courtyard and hallways of the temple. The sounds of the other children laughing. As a blind 10-year-old, he has learned to locate his friends by their laughter. He runs with the stamina of a boy who hasn't even begun to consider the realities of his blindness. He was different 
That much he understood. But it never stopped the others from including and accepting him. He had mastered moving without sight. His other senses picked up what his eyes couldn't. Sounds placed him. Smells warned him. Even touch guided him. He could navigate the world without mistake. Mostly. He had picked up speed, laughing, distracted. Suddenly he wasn't moving or upright. As he clears his head, he thinks to himself, I don't remember a wall being there. Then the truth hits him in the face. The slap would sting for much longer than the physical pain. He realizes quickly that he would much rather have run into a wall. A Sadducee. Why did it have to be a Sadducee? The men yelled in pain like someone had prodded him with a brand. The slap followed quickly and harshly. No words had been exchanged. None were needed. The boy didn't need to be able to see to know the look he was being given. The Sadducee, one of the most powerful men in the temple, and therefore Jerusalem. A man as close to God as you can get without being a high priest had slapped him. No words were necessary. Everything he thought about himself in that moment changed. The redness on his cheeks was not from the slap. Embarrassment burned like the tripods in the temple courts. The laughter he heard didn't come from his friends, it came from the rest of the temple. Even the walls seemed to be ridiculing him. He desperately sought to escape, his arms flailing out in front of him as he groped his way into the corner, finding comfort and shelter on the edges. He settled into the corner, sunk to the floor, and wept. The blind man wiped his tears off his face. He reaches out to the walls beside him and realizes he's never left that corner. Each morning he wakes up, but never ventures more than a few steps from where he stood. Inhale and let the breath out slowly. He turns his attention to the commotion in the temple, cleansing his mind of the memory. A few things to note before we go any further. One, Passover is at hand. Three times a year, Jews were instructed to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Passover was the first and arguably most important festival of the year. The goal was to meet and remember God's faithfulness as he brought his people out of slavery and into freedom. Our story takes place in the few days leading up to the festival, which means the already crowded streets of Jerusalem are becoming increasingly congested. Second, it wouldn't be strange for Jesus and his crew, being the good Jews they were, to show up. While Jesus appears to prefer the slower pace offered up north in Galilee, it's also clear that he understands the importance of spending time where the action is. But what makes this particular Passover so problematic for Jesus is that several religious leaders have openly admitted they want to kill him. Why? Well, remember, the temple is the hub for Judaism, and Jesus had a tendency to show up and make some pretty wild claims. Like John 8:58, where he announces, Before Abraham was, I am. The next line reads, So they picked up stones to throw at him. And then the next time he returned to the temple, he said something even more radical. I and the Father are one. As you can probably imagine, that didn't go well for him either. So all the onlookers probably expected him to show up for Passover, but they also probably assumed he was going to stay under the radar. He could smell the excitement before he heard the cheers and gasps. 
I can walk. Look, my legs. They can move. Must be a peddler. These men were common in the temple, always looking for money by performing miracles, planting someone in the crowd to act the part of the lame or the blind. He smiles and chuckles, the things they think of to make a few shekels. Still, he's heard rumor of the mysterious rabbi who travels from town to town in the far-flung edges of Israel. He is said to work true wonder. Something in the smell and taste of the air confirms for him what he's long hoped for. This rabbi is different. He hesitates in his corner. He hates attention. What he's about to do will put him at the center of it. But if this man could do all the other miracles, surely he could restore sight. He could finally look on the beauty of the only place he's ever known. Deep breath in, long, slow breath out. He turns and places his hands on the wall, slowly feeling his way toward the crowd. As he makes his way, his hands feel the less than familiar cracks and divots of the wall outside his usual radius. He pauses ever so slightly, but pushes on. As he nears the huddle of people, he knows he's being watched. He's become familiar with the sensation of eyes on him. Small sparks of flame shooting off a fire settling all over his skin. But not the whole crowd. Just one person. The rabbi. He's watching me. He's waiting for me. Suddenly, he can sense a presence in front of him. A faint, warm outline. The weight of a hand on his shoulder. In the years to come, he would never fully be able to describe what happened next. It went by so quickly, and yet he felt as if he still existed in that moment. From the hand spread a warmth that sent each one of the sparks on his skin dancing. It felt like being known for the first time. The world around him shifted and swirled, small cracks of gray, he would come to find out later, breaking through the darkness he lived his whole life. The warmth seeps into his soul and comforts his nerves. The streaks of gray brighten and sharpen. He starts to make out vague differences between things. Shapes, he realizes with astonishment. He can't make out the rabbi holy, but one image would stay with him forever. That gentle, joyous smile. Over the next few hours, more colors and shapes rise around him, vibrant and angular, soft and curved. He can see. Jesus began his ministry with a huge declaration. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Something new is here, and wherever it is realized, wherever it is being lived out, darkness gives way to light. Death gives way to life, and sickness gives way to health. So wherever Jesus went, people were healed. On this day, Matthew 21, 14 says, The blind and the lame came to the temple, and he healed them. Matthew, of course, sounds so casual when he writes that. It's easy to skip right over it, but think about that for a second. We don't know how many, but we do know as many as there were were healed. And more importantly, each one of those blind and lame people who came to Jesus in the temple that day were a human being, a soul made in the image of God with their own unique story. And in that one short casual verse, every one of them just got a major piece of their life back, including the man we are watching this entire story play out through. We don't know who he is, 
All we know is what Matthew 21, 14 tells us, that he once was blind and now is learning how to see. All he can do is blink. He can feel his eyes for the first time. They're heavy. He closes them for long stretches and then opens them as wide as they can go. The difference is unsettling. He feels uneasy and hopeful and anxious all at once. The room begins to go dimmer. He panics briefly, but suddenly realizes it's dusk. The sun is almost down. The world grows darker. As the darkness envelops the sky, he feels as if his sight is going with it. Such a strange sensation. The moment he's been waiting for, sight. And he has yet to fully enjoy it. And the light is already going out. Amazed as he is, he can't help but feel slightly let down as well. He got the one thing he spent his whole life wishing for, and now he won't enjoy it until morning. But that's not quite it, at least not completely. It's deeper. Mere hours ago, had he been asked, he would have been able to tell you all the ways sight would complete his life. The hardships he's endured gone with the opening of his eyes. Now, all he can say is he was wrong. He's not sure why or how, but he knows that sight wasn't the answer, at least not the whole answer. He looks around at the shapes and colors that continue to blend into the darkness, losing vibrancy and angularity. He can still clearly make out one figure, the man who gave him his sight, the rabbi. There certainly was something different about this one. Everyone crowds him, desperately seeking the man's attention. Abruptly, as if to indicate his disinterest, the rabbi walks over to a group of children. The children shy away and close their circle as he approaches. They know better than to engage with an adult in the temple. It never ends well. The rabbi stops and smiles at them. He begins to clap and stomp a festive rhythm. He laughs and hums a familiar children's song. The children look from his smile to his hands to his feet. One boy slowly makes his way toward him. The other children look in anticipation. As the rabbi continues to clap and laugh, another child, a girl, walks with purpose toward him. The dam has broken. The children, one by one or in small groups, begin to rush to him, water flowing downhill. They dance around him, singing joyous hosannas as he laughs and smiles. Nearby, a group of Pharisees watch, all scowls and facial hair. They scoff and jeer at the rabbi. What a disgrace, the man reads on their lips and faces. Clearly this man must get his praise from whomever he can, even children. Most people didn't know what to do with Jesus, in large part because he would do things like this. Children were nobodies at this point. Why would they be? They didn't carry their own weight. The only reason they were kept around was their potential to grow and become a useful part of society. But in the meantime, Nobody had any time or concern for them. And in a race for power and worth, it matters who you are associated with. So if you're trying to win a race, you don't have time for kids. There are too many problems to solve. But of course, Jesus wasn't trying to win a race, so he had time for everyone. By the way, Jesus once famously said, let the little children come to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these which is a brilliant line to drop when a whole bunch of religious leaders are mocking you for hanging with kids. He just 
subtly points out the irony here that the kids are actually the ones who understand the very thing these religious leaders have devoted their life to figuring out. I mean, these guys had scripture memorized and had a tendency to wield it against people like a weapon. Jesus, apparently already bored with the debate, simply points out that in all their study, they missed a verse. Psalm 8-2, where the psalmist writes, From the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. The darkness falls complete across the western horizon. The torches and candles are lit. The man realizes that the darkness only brings new shapes and colors, not the same dreaded emptiness he's come to know. The rabbi and his twelve pack their meager belongings. They are content to be done for the day. They make their way to the exit from on the far side of the temple. They must be heading to Bethany, the man guesses. That seems to be where they retreat after a busy day in Jerusalem. The rabbi has left quite an impression on the temple today, throwing out the money changers, healing the blind, playing with children. He clearly does not care about the normal order of business here. Yet just when something nears the breaking point, when the rope almost snaps, anticipation about what he'll do next reaches a peak. The rabbi leaves, just walks out. The rumors of the rabbi continue to prove true. He doesn't need to be the center. He doesn't even need to make a grand exit, casually walk out the far side into the night. The religious leaders gathering near where he left are not like this. They make it a point to be the last to leave, or at least make sure people watch when they do. The rabbi and his followers, they just decide their work is done and leave. The man focuses his attention back on the religious leaders. He's shocked to see them all in Congress. The Pharisees and the Sadducees laugh openly at the, la at the rabbi. They're uneasy pieces to be expected. They both try to outmove the other for temple control, but they ultimately have similar goals when it comes to the Jewish people. The Herodians shuffle just outside this inner circle. That never happens. Whatever brings them all together cannot be good. They have found a common enemy, the rabbi. Whatever their differences, he clearly threatens them all. The blind man decides it's too important to guess. He slowly makes his way towards them, using the power of invisibility he developed when he's simply another blind man in the temple. As he nears, the words crystallize in front of him. The people can be swayed. That's a Herodian, he thinks. It wouldn't be the first time, a Pharisee. We turned them on him. Then were their heroes, a Sadducee. The chief priest looks on passively. Then he nods. The decision is made tomorrow. By sundown, no one will follow this strange rabbi. Over the last several years, John Koenig has been building a YouTube channel called the Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows. It's absolutely brilliant, especially if you love words, because he's creating words to put language to the vast array of human thoughts, experiences, and emotions that we feel but don't have words for. This season is named after one of his words, Sonder, the realization that each random passerby is living a life as vivid and complex as your own. 
So we all think of ourselves as the main character and everyone else as extras, but everyone you see has a unique and complex story that they are at the center of and we're often just extras in. What does the word Sonder have to do with any of this? And what does any of this have to do with Einstein's quote? And why are we watching all of this play out through the lens of a man who just received his sight? Well, tomorrow, when Jesus and his crew return to a temple full of religious leaders hell-bent on taking him down, we'll begin to see that it has everything to do with all of this. Thanks for listening to this episode of Stories in Scripture. To find out more about the project, visit our website, storiesinscripture.com, follow us on Instagram at storiesinscripture, or on Twitter at SIS Project. And please be sure to rate and review us on iTunes.